The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Good morning, church. My name's Kelly. Hey, I got a good morning. Good. Thank you, guys. I, over, I spoke over you. I'm sorry. So polite. Uh, I have the joy of sharing God's word with you for yet a second week, and it is my delight to serve you in this way. Uh, a few weeks ago, I attended a meeting for a group of people who are going to visit Israel. And I am one of them. I, I get to go to Israel in about a week and a half, and I'm really excited about it. And I, and I look forward to sharing all about it when I do go, because hopefully some of you will want to go visit the land where our Savior lived uh, see it with your own eyes. I'm excited to see how that changes the way I teach and think. But one of the matters that we discussed in this meeting was security. <laughs> and if you know much about traveling overseas, you know, there's things that can happen. They can be misconstrued because of a language barrier or, I mean, on top of that, you're in Israel, which is the land of squabbles, right? Um, you never know what could happen. Well, one of the men in the group, uh, he piped up and he said, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but I've told my boys that if any of them see a brother that's in a fight, we'll all join in the fight, we'll win it first, and then we'll ask the questions. <laughs> and he went on to say, uh, I mean, I know you might feel differently about the ethic of that method of conflict resolution, but he said something interesting. He said, I know my boys... I know their character, and if something goes wrong, I can assume they're right. Now, I too am not going to discuss the ethic of that method of conflict resolution. But there is one thing, there's one piece of that that I find incredibly respectful, respectable. That's allegiance. In that family, it is unquestionable that they have an allegiance to one another. The dad assumes that the boys are abiding by a certain ethic that can be defended. The boys are assumed, uh, they're expected to assume the same thing of each other, and the boy that finds himself in an altercation bears the responsibility of representing that ethic in a stressful situation, or he could get his family in a very undesirable situation, right? The point is, they know they bear their father's name, and they know that that name entails a certain way of life. They're united together. There is no neutrality. They're in the same boat when they get in a conflict, and each of them gets, in, gets the same benefit and the same responsibility because they bear their father's name. Today we're going to be talking about a similar type of allegiance, an allegiance to God's kingdom and to Christ. It's a higher allegiance. The story comes from Luke 11, verses 14 through 26, and it involves Jesus, a demon-possessed man, some of Jesus' skeptics, and the prince of demons named Beelzebul. And if that doesn't get your interest, and it doesn't pique your interest, I don't know what would. We have such a cool text of scripture today, and I was intimidated when I first walked into it, but now 
I feel just full after reading it and I'm studying it and I'm hoping that you feel the same way at the end of the day. So let's go ahead and read the text and then we'll pray and ask God to bless this time here. Turn to Luke 11 verses 14 through 26. Uh, If you're reading from the Bible that you found in the back of the chair in front of you, then it will be on page 869, for those of you who may not know where to look. Uh, That's Luke 11, verses 14 through 26. This is the word of the Lord. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, He takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the wealth of not just knowledge, but the wealth of hope and joy and freedom that it serves us with, that it instills in us. And I pray that today you would help us to have a great allegiance to your son and the king that he came to establish. I pray that you would help us to not underestimate our enemy, but to trust in the strength of our king more than anyone. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our strong defender, we pray. Amen. Now, In general, aside from the pure meaning of the text, I love this story because it shows a lot of Jesus' human personality while at the same time much of his divine traits. I mean, Jesus casts out a demon. He reads the thoughts of men. He reasons with them on a few different points, which is interesting, and makes a a couple of earth-shaking statements Then he pulls back the corner of the curtain, as J.C. Ryle puts it, and shows us a little glimpse of what's going on behind the veil of the spiritual world that we cannot see with our own eyes. But, but, when you're looking at this story, 
It's easy to get off track into subjects that aren't really the focus of the Apostle Luke who authored this text. You see a demon possession, the prince of demons, something about a strong man, and a really confusing passage about demons going through waterless places without finding rest. Am I right? Now, I'll explain these subjects for sure, but we're going to follow the story that I think Luke intended. So what is this passage all about? How would you sum up this passage? I'll give you the answer to that in a biblical truth. This is what you need to take away and frame this entire passage with. The biblical truth is this. There are two opposing kingdoms, God's and Satan's. We must choose our allegiance. There are two opposing kingdoms, God's and Satan's, and we must choose our allegiance. And to help us understand that more clearly, I'm going to retell this story by walking through it and sharing four truths that I believe support this biblical truth from the text. Just last week, we were in a passage that taught us about prayer and the God to whom we pray. And then right after that, immediately we see a strong display of God's power, the same power he uses to answer our prayers. Jesus casts out a demon from a man. I'm not sure if you've noticed, but out of the five or six times that I've preached, this is the second one on demon possession. So I'm becoming that pastor. Um, aside from that, this demon is called a mute demon because the man is, who he possesses is unable to speak. So Jesus comes, casts the demon out, the man is able to speak again, and the people who see it are in shock. They're in shock. The scriptures say they, the people marveled. But here's the interesting thing. They all marveled because they all saw the same thing. But as much as I'm sure some of them believed in Jesus, a portion of this, these people responded two different ways. First, some of the onlookers claimed that Jesus cast out demons, the demon by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, and then the others were still skeptical and asked Jesus for a sign from heaven. Now here we get our, our first supporting truth. Number one, to discern evil from good, we must understand the nature of both. To discern evil from good, we must understand the nature of both. These skeptics had a hard time discerning the good that was done before their very eyes. And I'd love to say that the unbelieving world is the only one that has a problem with this, but unfortunately, we all do just as these Jews didn't discern the work of the God that they call their own. We all come from places of bias as to what is good and to what is evil. The important thing to remember is that we cannot allow our bias to shape our understanding. The, the, the reason that we must read the word of God is to buy, one of the reasons, is to bypass our bias and come into conformity of both mind and behavior that lines up with the triune God's definition of good. 
And in today's scripture, something amazing happened. A man was healed from mutinous and demon, demon possession, yet some of the people still analyzed the situation, saying that Jesus was in cahoots with Beelzebul, or Beelzebub, depending on what translation you're using. Either way, Beelzebul is another name for Satan, Jesus' adversary, our adversary. So some of these people said that Jesus was working with Satan in order to heal people. You might see the conflict there. The second group of skeptics saw a sign from heaven and then said, get this, Jesus, show us a sign from heaven. I, it, part of me can just see Jesus looking at them and kind of going, I mean, did you just see what I did? I mean, it was right there. Uh, but what you may not realize from the way the story reads is that he actually does do another sign from heaven. He reads their minds. The skeptics never said their accusations and their uh, skepticism to Jesus. They either said it among themselves or they were thinking it. Apparently, it looks like they were thinking it because the scripture says he knew their thoughts. And Luke writes, as, as Luke writes, and then, and then he responds to their skepticism. Well, we'll get to that response in a second. I want to hold off right there because first, I want to dwell on the skeptic's reaction as it pertains to us because I think we need to learn from it. I'm going to ask you a candid question. Do you ever hear the same reaction to the work of God in your own heart? Because I do. It just comes in a different form. God still moves in our world just as he did when he casted the demon out on that day. We must read our reaction when he moves and when he works. For example, what is your response when God chooses to work good from the actions of someone to whom you don't particularly get along with? How do you tend to react in your heart? I mean, isn't God the one who chooses whom he will use for his purposes? But yet in our heart, we often feel things like maybe, maybe do we attribute it as a one-off fluke and reason it away? Nah, it didn't, it just one time, you know. Or do we demand that they prove their motives as the skeptics ask for proof from Jesus? Do you see how our judgment gets clouded on what is good and what is evil? What goes on in our hearts when we've been hurt by the grievous sin of another person, but then God moves in their hearts to genuinely repent? Do we ask God to make them prove it again? Do we pretend to play God and know the motives of their hearts as Jesus did since he was God? And we must pay attention to our responses when, you know, God shows favor or blesses a person of another race and we're not happy with it. These disgusting things are in human hearts. Uh, what if the person God uses to make good is a Democrat or a Republican, depending on which side of the, of the, of the, of the political spectrum you're on? Are you able to receive that kind of goodness from God into the world with people that oppose you in some way? 
Do we, believe, do we believe that God's motives are wrong for choosing somebody like that? Or do we hate the person because we presume that they're not as deserving as we are or as moral as we are? Church, the point I'm making is to discern evil from good and good from evil is not as easy as we think because we have sinful human hearts. But, but it's possible. Anything that is not against the values of God in Scripture, that brings restoration between people, healing to the body and relationships, anything that restores biblical beauty, anything that brings glory to God and shows love to our neighbor, these things are good. Even if God chooses to do it in a way or through a person which you wouldn't have chosen if you were God. If something corrupts, if it is an unbiblical wedge between relationships, if it is contrary to the principles of Scripture, if it injures, if it deforms, if it's born of hate, these things are evil, even if they come from someone who we consider a good person. The only way to bypass our bias on what is good and what is evil is to conform our minds to the holy scriptures and to the heart of God. They alone tell us the truth and give us a compass. And Jesus himself is the incarnation of the essence of goodness because he is God. Anything that comes from him is good. Discern evil from good, we must understand the nature of both and learn to see beyond our bias and sinfulness. But let's move on with the story. Jesus now responds to his doubters and skeptics by using reason. They accuse him of casting out a demon by Satan, or Beelzebul as they call him. And by the way, Beelzebul is a pejorative term, it's a pejorative name. It means Lord of the Flies, or as the commentator mentions, the Lord of the Pile of Refuse. Anyways, what it's trying to say with the name is that Satan is the embodiment of evil. And Jesus reasons with his skeptics by saying, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? So our second supporting truth is this. Satan's kingdom is united against God's. Satan's kingdom is united against God's. Sometimes we get this idea that's different about Satan and his kingdom that's just in a mess. Well, it's not. It is a mess, but they're organized. It's common sense, folks. Satan is not going to thwart his own values He's not some bumbling, evil Mr. Bean trying to get the good guy. He's far worse. He's far worse. We can get this idea that Satan is the stereotypical cartoon red pajama demon leading his fiery minions into mischief. Church, Satan, Satan is a mastermind of evil. The name Satan isn't really a name at all, and Scripture is often referred to as the Satan, which is the adversary. 
And he's incredibly powerful. Jesus says it himself in the next passage we'll read in a moment, alluding to him as the strong man. He is against everything that God is for, and I don't know if we quite grasp that, and I think sometimes our Christian perspective even skews our understanding of this. Let me be clear about that. We know that Satan is God's adversary, and we like to capitalize on Christ's triumph over Satan. And therefore, we are vicariously triumphant over Satan, too, because of Jesus, right? This is true. That is true. But I don't know if we understand well enough that Satan could and would crush you if it was not for Jesus. He could and would do it. He isn't just against you, he is against God. You and I are collateral damage. We are refuse to Satan. We, whether we are saved or not, are made in the image of God. And Satan considers you and I, the believer and the unbeliever, a means to sullen God's beautiful and holy name. We are disgusting to him. He has no regard for us except that which he can use for his evil purposes. He is powerful beyond our strength, and without Christ, we do not stand a chance against Satan. Satan's kingdom is united against God's kingdom, and Satan wages war against God all around us with the evil devices that the human heart is already primed for by a sinful nature. We're already primed to be used by him because of Adam's sin and the sin in our own hearts. Satan is powerful, and his kingdom is united against God and us. Now, that's not the end of the story. But let's get back to the story. The skeptics can't deny the reality of the miracle exorcism that they witnessed. So instead of trying to say it didn't happen, they're attempting to undercut Jesus' character instead. But Jesus would never work alongside Satan, and Satan would not undercut his own mission to destroy and to distort. Jesus mentions how some of his skeptics' friends have cast out demons in the name of the Lord. And Jesus is effectively saying, go see your own friends who have cast out demons in the name of God, and you'll, they'll, they'll judge you for thinking that I cast out a demon by Satan. He's basically saying, they'll set you straight. A demon will not be cast out by Satan. He is on a mission to contaminate every human heart with evil. And it's at this time in the story that Jesus lays down some truth so powerful that I think it is hard to overestimate the ramifications. So hear me out. These skeptics were not willing to believe what they saw before their very eyes was God's work. So Jesus continues to reason with them by saying this. If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
And when I read that line in scripture, it's as if I can hear the thud of truth landing in the presence of them and us. The problem for the skeptics was this. If they reckoned with reality, they would, ha- they would have been forced to admit that Jesus was the Messiah. Casting out a demon here, don't get me wrong, it is a miracle on its own. But casting out a demon was not the only sign here. Other Jews had casted out demons before if we look at the scripture and see what Jesus says about their friends who cast out demons. This has been done before by other people, not Jesus. The uniqueness of Jesus is that he proved to possess the power of God in the exorcism while also proclaiming that the kingdom of God had come. This was a threat to the skeptics who were bent on unbelief. If the message of Jesus was contrary to the Father's, why would the Father honor his work? Christ was confirming his message And his skeptics knew that this would change everything. Jesus is the Messiah, and he was proving it. The Son of God was in their presence, and the kingdom of God had come upon them. The power of God was on display, and these people who saw it did not have eyes to see it. The prince of heaven was in their presence and they were not on bended knee. The the skeptics were doubting God to his face and they were still breathing. What mercy and what patience God has to the children of men. Now here, we see the third supporting truth that is just glaring at us. Number three, the powerful kingdom of God has come upon us in Jesus. The powerful kingdom of God has come upon us in Jesus. Church, Satan is certainly powerful, but Jesus is more powerful, amen? Satan tries to fill the human heart with evil, be it with demon possession or be it through the demonic uh, influence of deception alone. These, the presence of Satan may be more powerful than humans, but he's no match for the presence of God found in Jesus. Jesus brings the kingdom of God and when, which arrives with the presence of God, so therefore Jesus is God. And get this, the implications of Scripture and sending the helper, we still have his presence even after he ascended because he left his spirit with us. So we have the presence of God with us today. The kingdom of God is upon us. And here is the good news We talk about the gospel, and oftentimes we don't understand what the gospel means. The gospel is good news, and I want to share the good news with you right now. God's presence casts out fear, 
and Jesus, the very presence of God, cancels our sin by his precious blood that was shed on the cross and he brings forgiveness for all of our wrongdoings, mercy from the punishment that we deserved, and grace to extend us to grow in holiness every day. Satan comes to steal and to kill <coughs> and to destroy, but Jesus came to give life so that we would have it abundantly, as John 10.10 10 says. Jesus brings the kingdom wherever he goes, and he has come to you and to me. But Jesus continues the conversation with his skeptics after this by reasoning with them a little bit more. He uses an illustration, a word picture. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. Here, to clarify, the strong man is Satan. But when one stronger than he attacks and overcomes him, the stronger man is Jesus, he takes away Satan's armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Now pay attention to the way that Jesus describes Satan. He's the strong man and he's fully armed. Satan is not weak, we've established that. He's united against God, we've established that too. But Satan is also wielding weapons that are terrifying. Have you ever seen into the motives of your heart like I have? And have you ever been repulsed by it? I have been repulsed by the motives of my heart at times in my life. I'm sure that that feeling is not mutually exclusive to me. These are the devices of Satan. Not only does he prey on the sinful desires that we already have, when we indulge in them, he exploits them further for his purposes and he brings on, on us guilt and he brings on us shame. And then, in order to cope with it, we try to cope with our sin and our shame. And then we find that apart from turning to Jesus for hope, we compound our sin, our guilt, and our shame by using ungodly coping mechanisms. I mean, Satan is cunning in the way that he deceives us. Maybe we drown ourselves in alcohol when we've had too much. Or maybe we indulge in images that are unfit for the children of God. Or maybe you tear down others to make our, yourself feel better. Do you, do, you, do you find yourself coping with guilt these ways? Do you, do you find yourself coping with guilt and, and stress of sin with bursts of anger when you just can't handle it anymore? Or an impulse purchase because it's an anesthetic to make you feel a little better? Or what if it's the universally the universally effective weapon that Satan uses, distractedness. Satan is armed with weapons that are nauseating to think about, but some of them are more socially acceptable and still just as lethal. The truth is, Satan targets the human heart and he wrecks it. The chosen throne room of God, the heart and life of humans, becomes a place where Satan stores his treasure. And Satan's treasure is all that desecrates the work and values of God. 
But church, despite all of this evil activity, there is a stronger man who knocks at the door. He stepped down from his glorious and heavenly throne to enact justice on the evil tenant and to grant mercy to the troubled soul. The stronger man comes to claim that which he already will call his own and that which the deceiver came to vandalize. The strong man resists, but he is no match for the stronger, amen? Jesus cleanses the dwelling of the, of the human heart with his purifying blood. And he binds Satan with his resurrection from the dead. And he brings the kingdom and his indwelling spirit that refuses to leave you. The powerful kingdom of God has come upon us in Jesus. And then our story continues more. Jesus declares a frightful truth to his, sub, his skeptics. He says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the stronger man arrives, his people are at his side, and his enemies flee in terror. So here we receive our final supporting truth, number four. There is no neutrality between kingdoms. There's no neutrality between kingdoms. I get this wording from J.C. Ryle, who's just a, he's, a, he's amazing. There is no neutrality. There is no way to play both sides. There is no middle ground. There is no demilitarized zone. You must choose your allegiance to the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness. Now, you remember the family I was mentioning before? They declared unwavering allegiance to each other. If there was a conflict, they were all in it together, and they were devoted to one side of the conflict, and there's no wavering. They know they bear their father's name and heritage, and the question is for you today, are you a child of the heavenly father? And have you begun to live under the values of his family? Do you bear his name? Is his name written on your hand and in your heart? This is the question we have to ask ourselves, church, because we are at risk of trying to play the middle. Now, let me be clear. There's one way, one major way, that this analogy breaks down about the family and its allegiance. We don't need to defend Jesus. He's just fine on his own. Jesus has secured what is his. He is not at risk of failure or of losing what he has purchased. But we must choose allegiance to the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of Satan. It's either darkness or it's light. There is no dim in between. Jesus has no need to be defended. He fights for us, but we can stray away from the safety of his presence. He's always there to turn around, but we can stray away from his safety. I'm not saying you can lose your salvation. I'm just saying that we can move away from him and into areas that we do not belong as Christians. Worse yet, 
Worse yet, we can deceive ourselves into thinking we're under his protection while still remaining squarely in the domain of darkness. We're in one kingdom or the other. Jesus, Jesus makes that clear. And if you try to claim Jesus while not living as a citizen of the kingdom that he brings, you're only fooling yourself. You cannot bring darkness into the light. Either the light will defeat the darkness or you will falsely claim that the light is darkness just like Jesus' skeptics did. Now, I promise you this is related, okay? Bear with me. Allow me to read the most confusing passage from today's scripture, and by God's grace, I pray that you are able to see the beauty um, that I have seen behind what may be hidden by the, by the strange language, okay? So I'm going to read Luke 11, 24 through 26 again. This is immediately, pa- immediately uh, after the strong man analogy. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, It passes through waterless places, seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my home from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. And then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now, coming out of the strong man analogy, the illustration that Jesus used, and going into what happens when a demon is cast out of a person, it's kind of strange, is it not? Strange language? Now, I'll be clear. It's, it's clear that, that Jesus is lifting the corner of the veil between the spiritual and the physical. And I believe that the imagery is a true description of what happens even if we don't quite have the framework to understand it. I'm not going to try to explain those, the language away. It's he's talking about something we don't have experience with. But let me encourage you not to get distracted by what we cannot understand. Waterless places, seven more evil spirits coming and dwelling in the, in the abode. I would even encourage you not to get unduly focused on casting out demons. Even the basis of his analogy, because... Hear me out. Pay the most attention to the house and the fact that there's no one to defend it. Does that make sense? Jesus used casting out a demon as his analogy here. But you could use any number of examples that begin with something that is good but don't terminate in the stronger defender moving in. Maybe a person starts trying really hard to be more like a Christian. That's good, but it doesn't terminate in Jesus and dwelling our life. Maybe a person has a deeply spiritual experience and they look clean for a bit, but Jesus doesn't indwell them. Maybe a person claims to be a Christian but doesn't want Jesus to rule their hearts so they keep him at a distance. The appearance of being clean. But there's no stronger defender inside. 
you can try to evict a bad tenant and claim to have a new one without ever submitting to the terms of the one who wants to move in. We can perform like a Christian without having our hearts regenerated, and we leave our hearts undefended. Do you see what's going on here? This strange passage about a demon leaving, unable to find rest, and coming back to find a clean, tenantless home and inviting seven more evil spirits to join him, it's a picture of the heart that tries to be a citizen of one kingdom and the other when there is no in-between. So sure, sure, go ahead, quit porn. Get off your phone and spend time with your family. Those are good things. Attend church. That's a good thing. Serve in the nearby shelter. That's great. Read your Bible every day. That's good. But if Jesus isn't the stronger man who guards our heart and our life, our last state will be worse than the first. There is no one to defend you. You've just made your heart more appealing for the next evil tenant. But if Jesus, the strongest man, the divine son of God, the embodiment of goodness, if he is the one who defends your life, his weapons against the enemy are effective. Love toward the children of God, which is shown in his hatred to evil. Grace toward the children of God, which is shown in his judgment of sin on the cross. And mercy toward the children of God, which is shown in his wrath toward Satan. If Jesus is defending your heart and life, you are safe. And the Holy Spirit will never leave you. In closing, J.C. Ryle, again, uses a term that I hope resonates with you because when I read it, I thought, that's exactly right. He says that we need a thorough Christianity. A thorough Christianity. We must not be lukewarm. There is no neutrality. We must claim Jesus as both Savior and and king because savior sounds great but if we ask him to be our king that has demands upon it does it not you are either with him or you're against him there are two opposing kingdoms gods and satans we must choose our allegiance so church receive him thoroughly today by trusting in him and then living as as a citizen of the kingdom that he brings and if you make that decision to follow Christ and to make him your king today then please see me I'll be in the back later Jim will be in the back who you saw earlier we would love to talk to you and if you want to during this final song go back there have prayer for anything not just to talk about salvation if you need prayer or you need questions answered come talk to me come talk to Jim in the back during the sermon or during the last song 
allow us to pray with you. This is not a scare you into heaven sort of tack like a, like a house of terror that people used to do back in the 80s. This is recognizing the kingdom of God and its goodness and the evil one who is against us and making that announcement to ourselves and to the world that we will not follow in the footsteps of Satan. We are squarely in the, in the kingdom of God. He will protect you for all eternity if you will make him yours. Let's pray. Father God, you have done such kindness to us. And a few weeks ago, we, we were taught to pray, or last week we were taught to pray the Lord's Prayer. And in the Lord's Prayer, you teach us to say, hallowed be your name, because you are holy. And you deserve to be seen as holy through the world. And you say to, get, to ask for daily provisions by asking for our daily bread. And you say to ask for the forgiveness of sins as we forgive others. So Lord, we do want you as our savior to forgive us our sins. We also want you to be our king who requires us to forgive others. And I pray also that you would deliver us from evil and lead us not into temptation so that we can trust in you, not with just our mouths, but with our lives. It's in the name of Jesus Christ I pray, amen.